This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Yo, friends, what's up? Okay, another podcast coming your way. On this episode, I interviewed Dr. Constantine Campbell. He wrote this book. Can you read this? Is this backwards? I don't know. It's Jesus versus Evangelicals, a biblical critique of a wayward movement. This is a great book, okay? If you want to feel vindicated that all the nonsense you've seen in evangelical spaces, you know, that maybe you're not alone thinking that, this is the book to read. It's so good. Constantine, I would say based on my conversation with him, definitely is maybe more more typical Christian for, for what it's worth than maybe some of us might be. Uh, and you'll hear that in some of his language. Uh, but I, I respect that, man. Listen, I, I say this all the time, folks. I'm not asking people to hold my view specifically or to see things the, the way I see them. The, the world is big. The Christian tradition is massive. We need people all over the house who can kind of speak into what's happening. And Constantine is someone who grew up very evangelical, was a, was a, uh, a professor in evangelical spaces. So to have him on about the book that he wrote based on his own experience and research, it was just so good. So Constantine, thank you for coming on. It means the world. And of course, friends, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It's so cool to be doing this work. I, I, it's always an honor and a privilege um, to know that there are people out there listening to this. It, it just means the world. If you want to support the work that we do, you can share this podcast. You can subscribe to it uh, wherever you get your podcast, or you can uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel and watch this podcast. We've been doing more and more work to get these podcasts on YouTube because some of you are kind of crazy and like watching people talk via podcast. So we try to be wide, and so we're trying to reach other people who like that kind of stuff. So you can subscribe on our podcast, give us a review, give us a rating. And if you want to donate to help make this work possible, that would be so helpful. We are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as they try and navigate better paths forward in the Christian tradition. We offer everything including our podcast, totally free. There's no Patreon. There's not. There's nothing hidden behind a paywall because people are generous and they donate so we can give this stuff away. So thank you to the 300 plus monthly donors who help make this work possible. It means the world to us. Your work does not go unnoticed. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Constantine Campbell. Talk to you all next time. 
All right, friends. Wow. I, I This is going to be a great conversation. I have Dr. Constantine Campbell with us. Uh, Constantine, thank you so much for making time. You're in Australia. I'm in New Jersey. Our time zones are, are crisscrossing in the space-time continuum, and here you uh-huh. are. So, so thanks for making it happen. It really means a lot. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's great to be here. I, I found you on Twitter. I think someone I know, maybe it was my friend Ben uh, Kramer. I'm not sure. He uh, was recommending your book, Jesus versus Evangelicals or, you know, V Evangelicals. And mm-hmm. I said, Ooh, okay. <laughs> I love this book. Sounds like it's right up my alley. I mean, you know, we, we do the new Evangelicals. We're a nonprofit organization. I started this organization uh, about two years ago, and the subtitle is A Biblical Critique of a Wayward Movement. I'm like, yes, yeah. Constantine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, you know, my, my people. So uh, before we get into, into the book, I always like to ask our guests, give me some of your backstory. Did you grow mm. up in evangelical spaces? And then what led you to write a book like this? Mm. Yeah, uh, great question. I became a, a Christian when I was uh, at university. I was a music student, and it was an independent evangelical church where I became a Christian. So basically, my entire Christian life um, was attending evangelical churches. I studied at an evangelical seminary in Sydney, and then uh, later on, uh, became a professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, in the Chicago area. So, mm. you know, very deeply in the evangelical heritage. Um, in Australia, that can also mean Anglican. So uh, I was ordained in the Anglican Church and um, studied in the, the Sydney Anglican Diocese, which is evangelical, regards itself as an evangelical Anglican diocese. So this is definitely my background. Um, but... Um, over previous years, well, really several years, and especially while I was living in the States, yeah. I sort of began to become really uncomfortable with what was going on with evangelicalism, um, what people meant by the term, but also and especially the the use of political power um, for the sake of an evangelical agenda um, really uh, – you know, became increasingly, I, I became increasingly uncomfortable with that. And that sort of led to the, the writing of the book. Uh, but while I was at it, there are a number of other things about evangelicalism that I thought I could address this too. Uh, and all under the same sort of critique, which is, you know, reading the Bible wouldn't lead you to do these things. It wouldn't lead you to say these things. It wouldn't lead you to act in this way. And I believe in the Bible. I want to follow Jesus. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I don't see how you move from Jesus to what I'm seeing over here. Uh, not just in the American evangelical church, but the book does have a special focus there. Yeah, I mean, listen, there are people who are listening to this saying, yes, yes, Constantine, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that that certainly is my story. You know, I was raised uh, very conservative evangelical uh, through the Reformed tradition, uh, homeschooled, mm-hmm. you know, my, almost my whole life, small private school after that, completely all in. I mean, mm-hmm. I was one of these typical all in from a young age, always committed. I did it all. I mean, you name it, I've done it. Uh, help plant churches, mission trips, um, you know, um, uh, youth ministry, uh, worship leader stuff. And 
as I got older, I started saying something is not right here. Like something doesn't add up. You're telling me to read this book and tell me to take the Bible incredibly seriously, which Mm -hmm. maybe I would argue now wasn't as serious as I thought, but that's for a different discussion. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount and I'm going, okay. And then I'm seeing, especially through 2016, I think for a lot of us, that Mm -hmm. was really a linchpin moment where we're like, wait a second. You know, what I tell people often and people who listen to the podcast know where I'm going with this, is I I say the same people who taught me about this sexual purity ethic that, you know, I couldn't touch myself or touch anyone else until I'm married were mad at me because I couldn't vote for the guy on the cover of Playboy magazine on his third wife and who bragged about assaulting women. And somehow I was like the one who was out of control. So I I definitely, I feel so much of what you're saying. Um, A a thousand percent. What was there a moment for you or was it more like a gradual progression? What were some of the big things that kind of made you start of rethinking your relationship to your own faith tradition? Well, I suppose um, in Australia, I think the uh, American thing and fu- and putting full percent, uh, 100% behind Trump and, and also the support of uh, – the right to bear arms and, and these sort of cultural things that are very American. Uh, no, they're Australia- biblical, Constantine. They're <laughs> absolutely biblical. I'm sorry. Yeah. I had to say it. Go yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Australian Christians sort of like go, oh, I don't get it, you know, so uh, mm. I'm not alone in thinking this, you know, this is a yeah, very, yeah. very much the perspective from our part of the world. But uh, for me, it was the time living in the States and then coming back uh, and certain things that happened in my personal life where I was like, you know what, I'm no longer working for an American um, seminary or institution. Uh, I, I don't have to worry about like losing my job if I write a book like this. And to be honest, there's no way I would have been able to write this book if I was working for an American Christian organization. It was just too risky. You'd, you'd probably lose your job, you know, and um, – being back in Australia and having that perspective of being outside the States again and uh, being somewhat independent again, I felt like, and I actually, I have freedom now. This is an opportunity. And, uh, you know, it was sort of written during the COVID period. Uh, mm. It looked like, you know, um, all, all the, you know, craziness we're watching on TV with, with what Trump was saying about the COVID vaccine. But then also evangelicals right. saying, don't wear a mask. If you wear a mask, you're, you must be, you know, anti-Trump and therefore you're anti-Christian. I'm like, what's going on? This is crazy, you know? Oh, I, I truly, so many of us felt like we were in the upside down, like in Stranger Things, you yeah. know, like where totally. are we? What is happening? And yeah. unfortunately, you know, and we'll dig in, into this more later on, but I, I only feel like, like there evangelicalism specifically stateside. And I think also in Australia, I think about Hillsong now and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. They've only seemed yeah. to kind of double down in some of these positions instead of kind of re-examine them. But something you said that was very interesting was you mentioned that you couldn't have written this book when you were in these circles. Um, Do you think that there are other people who maybe you keep in touch with that would also are kind of holding back who might be in those spaces because they're concerned about their job? I'm not asking for names, of course, but just Mm. people in general, you know, who are saying, well, listen, I have to go along because my my job is tied to this. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I've had a few friends say exactly that. Um, say, I I would have loved to have written that book, but, you know, there's no way. And, And I even had a friend say, um, you know, I've always been anti-Trump, but I couldn't say that out loud because wow. I was afraid of losing my job. And I'm like, wow, wow that that's crazy town. Yeah. Um, 
I'm wondering your thoughts because you are an academic. You know, you're you obviously have studied a, a lot of things, uh, and and you've done a lot of work here. I'm just kind of curious your perspective. One of the other things I've noticed, and I'm not someone who comes from the academic world. I'm much more a boots on the ground type of person. My experience is what drives a lot of our work, and then of course, you know, relying on folks like yourself. Um, I have this suspicion, like my perspective is that I think evangelicalism, broadly speaking, I'm going to have you define that in a minute, but I think broadly speaking has an inability to self-reflect. And whenever people, it seems like to me, I'm again speaking broadly, that one of the reasons why someone like yourself couldn't write this book while still being employed by an evangelical institution is because they just couldn't take the criticism. They would see you then as a threat as someone who had who then had to be pushed out to preserve whatever they think God is doing uniquely in that space. Do you think that's like a fair assessment in your experience or am I kind of off there? Uh, I think it's a pretty fair assessment, generally speaking. It's not true of every institution, you know. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think uh, a number of institutions, and where I where I worked at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, there was certainly a willingness to engage in self-reflection and self-critique of the evangelical movement. And partly that's because there wasn't a very strong affiliation with mm. any particular denomination, uh, even though technically it's, it's connected to the evangelical free church. But, you yeah. know, I think, I think seminaries that are much more tightly knit uh, with their supporting denomination are at more risk because they are regarded as being um, strongly confessional. They're looked to to train their pastors in order to work in that particular denomination. And so that's where there's a lot more risk, I think, for people who want to be self-reflective and self-critical. That's fair. Why don't we start with maybe what, what I should have asked first, but I kind of jumped the gun. How do we define the term evangelical? I mean, Kristen Dumay uh, or Dumez, she'll say, you know, there's kind of like a theological r- loose definition. Then there's also a cultural definition. So it is kind of hard to define as a whole. You go into it in the very beginning, kind of defining some of these terms for the sake of like our conversation. How do you define what it means to be an evangelical? Hmm. Well, you know, you could answer that question historically and go back to the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago and talk about the the commitment to the centrality of the the gospel, the authority of the scriptures, the penal substitutionary death of Jesus for us, etc. Yeah. But really what matters is the way the term is being used now because I've trained in linguistics, a uh, basic principle of linguistics is that um, m- meaning is determined by usage. So you can say, oh. oh, no, literally, the word literally doesn't mean figuratively, like, I literally died, man, you know, I said, no, that's, that's not what literal means, because if, <laughs> if you, if you literally died, you'd, you wouldn't be able to say, you wouldn't be able to misuse the word literal, okay? <laughs> yeah, but right, the reality right. is, the reality is people do use the word that way. Um, and so the word literal yes. has changed its meaning to include figurative. And so much so that a few years ago, the Oxford English Dictionary change the meaning of the word literal to include the figurative meaning. So you can say, I literally died and not be incorrect because words, the meaning of words are determined by the way we use them, right? Um, so A the very meaning fair of, critique, by the way. I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the meaning of the word evangelical has changed depending on usage. The way the word is used yeah. is what it means. And part of the problem here is um, that a lot of evangelicals saying, no, 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 evangelical doesn't mean this, it means that. And so I found in Australia, anyone who's an evangelical saying, oh, no, 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 we're not the American sort of evangelical, we're this. But as soon as you have to engage in that 
redefinition with people, you, you realize it, the word doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, mm. No one else is using the word the way you, you think it means. So basically I define an evangelical through three concepts. There's a theological ev- evangelical, and that's someone who uh, is an evangelical out of theological conviction. You know, they believe that, that Jesus is the son of God, that he died for our sins, that he rose again to life, that the Bible is the inspired scriptures, the word of God. Then there's the cultural evangelical. And these are the, the, the people who might use the term of themselves because they hang out with basically an evangelical crowd. You know, maybe they mm-hmm. go to church uh, that regards itself as evangelical. They don't necessarily hold these theological convictions, uh, but they broadly in that cultural universe. And then there's the political evangelical. And these mm-hmm. are the ones who, who are really wielding political power in order to achieve certain, basically what are conservative political goals. Yeah. And they've, and they, they might believe, you know, that God exists or whatever, but they're not theologically committed to evangelicalism the way that that word has meant for the last 500 years. So three terms, yeah. theological, cultural, and political. And I think that the, those three terms together basically encapsulate what the word means today. Yeah. I mean, I, I can think about people fitting into all three of those categories. And then we have yeah. this thing called the new evangelicals, just trying to mm-hmm. swing the bat at something different. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and see, it's interesting because people often ask, you know, like why keep the name evangelical? And, and, and honestly, when I started, when I started this work, I was still in an evangelical church drumming every Sunday. I was faithful to that work. I loved it. And then my church kind of put me in like an ultimatum kind of spot where it was like, okay, choose one. And so I kept doing really? this work. And yeah. I, not that I had to, I, I guess at that point, I had to think a little more critically, okay, why new evangelicals? And the two reasons I came up with, and I would love your thoughts on this, is number one, um, there's a, a, a book by uh, Donald Dayton, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage, that kind of talks about some of the early Wesleyan tradition, at least in America, and how they're very egalitarian and kind of, you know, they were abolitionists. And I was like, okay, these people seem like my kind of people, yeah. very socially yeah. minded, right? Um, and then also I think about, and, and you're the linguistic scholar here, not me, but my understanding is that the word evangelical means, you know, someone who brings good news. And I don't think that evangelicals have a lot of good news to bring right now, frankly. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, can we try and bring some good news back to people? You know, that maybe at the center of the universe is love. It is God who, who desires to be in relationship with all people, uh, you know, helping to bring heaven to earth. Uh, and so that's kind of how we had to renegotiate that term. And also, I think for me, I am a little too damn stubborn, Constantine, to let the fundamentalists take the term because evangelicalism and fundamentalism were really two distinct movements, mm. at least in America, that were opposed for a long time. And at least in my experience, I would love your your thoughts on this, especially writing this book. It seems like, like, like they've kind of merged into more yeah. of like a, a solid unit. What are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, DeMay's book, Jesus and John Wayne, yes, unpacks yes. this really well. And... Yeah. Um, in actual fact, I, I totally agree with you. That sort of feels like uh, they've come back together, but they originally started together as well. Oh, okay. And so, DeMay, I think, shows that, that fundamentalism started off, you know, it started off as a, a sort of fine movement, which is like, let's, let, we're, we're united around the fundamentals of faith, right? Let's not get caught up in the weeds and all the details and where we disagree. The fundamentals are what's important. And I'm like, yes, yeah. orthodox Christianity for the last 2000 years, all Orthodox believers have held to these fundamentals. But then in the twenties, you know, they got caught up in the scopes trial, trying to argue in a court of law that uh, evolution was wrong, that Genesis could be read literally. And, um, 
the, the fundamentalists failed, um, you know, uh, spectacularly in that context. And because it was a media bonanza, all of a yeah. sudden the term fundamentalism became associated with these particular views, very conservative, fundamentalist way of reading the Bible, anti-science, anti-intellectual, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, and so by the time of the 40s, the more progressively minded fundamentalists were like, you know, this term doesn't mean what it used to mean. Let's rebrand ourselves as evangelicals. Hmm. And that's when the National Association of Evangelicals began in 1942. And so it was an interesting rebranding exercise because they realized that fundamentalism did mean what it used to mean, and they could no longer use it. So I actually argue in my book, in the last chapter of the book, that I, I think the same thing has happened now to the label evangelical. And sure, some people are going to want to keep it because it means something to them on a fundamental, maybe identity, emotional level, or because of the historical significance of the term. But yeah. the reality is the meaning of the word has changed. Yeah. And I sort of challenge readers to say, look, if fundamentalists were smart enough to rebrand themselves as evangelicals, hmm. are evangelicals smart enough to rebrand themselves as whatever the next term is going to be? Because I, personally, I don't think the term is retrievable anymore. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong. Uh, but you know, it well, wouldn't be the I'm, first I'm time. I'm swinging the bat, you know. <laughs> hey, I'm look, swinging the and bat. I, we'll and see. I get it. And and I think because you've called yourself the new evangelicals, you're positioning yourself as coming from something, but also yeah. as reconfiguring it. And that's a clever way, I think, of sort of positioning yourself. You know. Well, I must be honest. I mean, there are definitely days, and this is no secret to people. There are days where I think, like, uh, is this evangelical thing that like really birthed me? What I tell people has really radicalized me. Is is there anything like worth salvaging? I mean, especially institutionally. I just feel like the more I and I do this work full time now, um, you know, the more I, I follow what's going on, it just seems like there's a lot of problems and it's interdenominational in that evangelical umbrella. You know, you, you have things like John MacArthur's church and all of their scandals. You have the whole thing with Brian Houston right now and Hillsong and even more stuff coming out about him with, 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 with yeah. their financial stuff. And then you just have, you have everything in between Kenneth Copeland's in that mix somewhere. James White's in yeah. the mix, Doug Wilson. And I'm just yeah. like, wow, these are people that they don't have any theological agreement hardly yet. They're so under this umbrella and they're all problematic. And it doesn't mm. seem like, that, like there's a lot of accountability in these spaces. So, what am I doing with this name? So, I mean, I do yeah. think it's, it, it's a very fair point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think it's obvious for a lot of people to say, okay, yeah, we know uh, evangelicals, it's, Christian nationalism. That's the problem. What are some of the other issues yeah. that you bring up in this book, comparing it, comparing this movement to Jesus? Yeah. I think Christian nationalism is like the most obvious problem from the outside and the yeah. most pressing problem right now in the last few yes, years agreed. and with the upcoming presidential election. But uh, by no means evangelicals, evangelicalism's only problem. Uh, hmm. So I, in the book, I address uh, problems of, well, chapter two is called exclusion zones. The, the way that evangelical culture and, and, and pastors um, exclude the other, exclude the enemy. Now, I know this is not true of all evangelicals, but we are talking in general terms and we're talking about the, the general trends of the culture at large. And yeah. the reality is if you ask people who don't fit, they do feel excluded. They feel like there's an us and them type thing. So that's a really deep problem that goes to the core of what Christianity is about, where God's love is for all people. 
that Jesus makes a claim that anyone can follow him, no, ma- no matter if they're uh, their past, their their race, their tradition, their culture, their heritage, their sexuality, their gender. Um, so evangelicals who exclude the other uh, and make them feel excluded and make them feel like the enemy is f- something fundamentally wrong with the core of that movement. I also have a chapter on judgmentalism, obviously related mm. to that previous concept. Uh, the chapter is called Bad Judgment and uh, the perception, and the perception has been studied statistically, is, is a very high perception that evangelicals are judgmental people. But uh, matching that with the reality. And I used to think, you know, uh, evangelicals aren't like that. That's a Hollywood sort of stereotype. That's a trope. That's not me. That's not my friends. That's not my church. But yeah. my own experience has led me to reconsider that. And mm. in the wake of you know, a failed marriage and a divorce mm. and a remarriage. I experienced really acute judgmentalism. I'm like, man, like, first of all, you know, haven't you known me for 20 years? Like, don't you know <laughs> what sort of person I am? Well, all of a sudden you're turning your back on me because, you know, right. because I couldn't, I wasn't able to save a, a really difficult marriage um, and, and being excluded from, you know, speaking platforms and, and, and sort of things where I was sort of like at the center of that world a bit, you know, and, and just being pushed out to the side. I'm like, wow, it's real. And, and don't, don't these people believe in a merciful, loving God? Like, didn't Jesus, you know, hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners? Like, you know, um, and, and didn't actually Jesus judged the people who judged other people? That was the, you know, that was the one thing where Jesus like was really clear it's like, you know, you're far from God if you are right. sitting in a position where you think you're God exercising judgment over someone else who's a yep. sinner just like you. You're a failure as well, just maybe not in a such overt kind of way or in a different kind of way. But one of the problems of evangelicalism is we have, this is another chapter topic, but we have this code of acceptable and unacceptable sins. Oh. Yes, I read that chapter. It was so good. And yeah, on the money. No, it really was because I, I think to, to your point, okay, so we have exclusionary zones, judgmental, um, you know, perception that we believe is reality. Uh, and then this, you know, uh, what sins are tolerated and which ones aren't. I think all three of those truly are bullseyes. And I know people who are listening have had experiences with all three of those, including myself to some degree, and also have recognized this for a long time. And then when we, when we brought this up, it was a problem. In fact, I remember reading the book Unchristian by the Barner Group. I'm pretty sure you cite that in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they, this is like 2004, 2006, maybe it's, it's old. And then they were saying, Hey, our data shows this perception that most Americans, most people in America, at least see evangelicals as, and it's the same issues today. You know, they're, they're judgmental, they're homophobic, et cetera. And yeah. it just seems like it's been what, 16 years since that book came out. And I only see a culture that continues to double down in that, in that way. And then like you said, to your point, Constantine, you know, and you you talk about this in your book as well, where yes, you had a failed marriage, you got divorced and all of a sudden people that have known you for decades turn their back on you. But we also know that there are evangelical leaders 
who have had a failed marriage or who have, you know, I don't know, been alone with women who weren't their wives for 45 minutes in a hotel room all drunk, you know, and they're still senior pastors of a church for a lot of years and that's okay. But you, yeah. Constantine, the layperson, well, you had the divorce, so we have to turn our back on you. That's what is so frustrating for me. I would have more respect if these spaces were at least consistent and how they claimed to, to be intolerant of quote unquote sin, however, however they, they define that. But I have found a very much a pick and choose culture of whoever's in power tends, tends to get a much easier, you know, yeah. go of it and a much more lenient, you know, um, set of actions that they can get away with. But people like you or me, the, I'm, I was a volunteer drummer and my church said, sorry, you're talking about queer inclusion. You can't be here anymore. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel that I really do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's interesting when you look at what Jesus says and what the Bible as a whole says, by far the worst sin is pride. Yeah. And um, so many evangelical leaders are full of pride and hypocrisy. Uh, and, you know, so many have been dismissed because, eventually dismissed because of uh, arrogance and bullying and wielding power in an inappropriate way. Uh, yet these, these things were tolerated for far too long. So what would get you fired right away is, you know, a, a failed marriage or, you know, having an affair or something like that. But you could be a bully for years on end and the church would put up with it. And so what's going on there when, when Jesus forgives um, the adulteress and the prostitute, when Jesus forgives people who sin in those kinds of ways, um, yet is very strong in his opposition to religious leaders who are full of pride and yeah. judgmentalism and hypocrisy. And that is the, I think the cardinal, that's really the cardinal sin in the Bible because if you are a proud person, you can't actually do what the gospel requires, which is repent and believe. Because yeah. both those things require humility before God. You know, if you're going to repent, you're saying, I've been in the wrong. I'm going to change direction. I'm going to turn away. That takes humility. If you're going to believe, this is not just a mental assent. It's actually yes. a trust. I put my confidence yes. in someone else besides yeah. myself. And that takes humility. So if you have pride, you actually exclude yourself from fellowship with God. And, and yet that's what we see running rampant through the, the evangelical universe. Yeah. I mean, and not only is it tolerated, it's many times it's celebrated. I mean, yeah, you know, Mark, right. Mark Driscoll is, is it maybe textbook, you know, he's the, the most common example cited maybe in this case, but there's someone who is prideful, who is arrogant, who refuses to repent and people still applaud him. I mean, he has an entire podcast devoted to his abuse and the guy's still speaking at marriages, at marriage conferences. And so yeah. I, my question to you is, you know, in, in maybe your studies and in, in your thoughts, do you think that like this, this again, broadly speaking, of course, but like this evangelical institutional culture of like this this mega church model that kind of gets sent out to other smaller churches to try and rep, re, uh, replicate. Does it just kind of attract these what I might call type A narcissistic people who just want to yeah. be that charismatic leader? Is that is that more a feature than a bug in your experience and understanding? Yeah, I mean, I do have a chapter called Mega Perch Pastors, <laughs> and sort of explore that how unhealthy the mega church model is for everyone, but especially for the pastor. 
and this is something that doesn't often get spoken about, but because they become, they effectively become the star of the show, the lights are on them and the crowds come to see them because that, that's the reality. People want to hear their, their celebrity pastor preach. They don't want to hear just some guy who, you know, faithfully unpacks a passage of scripture. No, it's got to be the celeb with all the, the stand up humor skills and the yeah. rhetorical flourishes and the neat presentation, you know, whatever it is uh, that attracts people. And whatever they might say to the contrary, oh, you know, no, I, I live for Jesus and, and Jesus' kingdom and his glory and his fame. The reality is just not, that, that's just not the way it works with, with that sort of culture. It's not set up like that. It's set up like a theater or a cinema where totally. you have celebrity actors on the stage and people pay their money and they come and they take it in. And it's spiritually incredibly unhealthy for everyone who does that, but even more so for the pastors. Now, I, again, I don't want to generalize too far because there are many faithful pastors of large churches, you know, who, who really are humble, who've resisted, um, you know, it's, it's failings and whatever. But, but I think they're the kind of, that's a, it's it's not the case that the mega church model is unhealthy. It's just a miracle that not everyone falls when you yes. when you're when you're tempted with fame and and power and money like that and influence. You know, it's a miracle not everyone is corrupted. So um, yeah, I'm I'm really personally um, worried and um, and also to be honest, repulsed by the mega church model. I know that mega church, some mega churches have achieved a lot of good things for our communities yep, yep. and and in the lives of believers. But also statistically, we see that really the way they grow is by sucking other churches dry. Mm. And they might deny that claim and say, "Oh no, 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 we've reached out to a lot of people." But the statistics don't show that most people attending mega churches have have even driven across town maybe forty five minutes. And passing dozens of smaller churches to do so, yeah, right? They've left their home church to now attend this mega church, and um, that's so unhealthy in so many ways. Yeah, I had the opportunity to hang out with uh, Andy Stanley for uh, a few days a couple of weeks ago, and I will say he definitely seems like an exception to the rule in, in in what you just said. But like, but like you said, that that was what was that that's what surprised me was yeah. meeting Andy and, and just seeing how he was with his staff and his volunteers and how he doesn't have his own parking spot. And I go, wow, this is like so not what I expected because the megachurch culture. The default, if you just kind of follow it to its logical conclusion, is that yeah. you have the celebrity pastor who has this privilege. And I, man, I gotta say, Constantine, it is so interesting hearing you say what you're saying because I think a lot of us, and I, I really mean this myself for sure, for years, even in my evangelical church, I would often be like, guys, I know that you're saying it's all about God, but the physical reality of what we're doing does not demonstrate yeah. that. You know, like all eyes yeah. point to a stage, all eyes point to the lights, all eyes point to a pastor. I mean, we're evangelical. The Eucharist is like a once a month thing for most of us, you know, which is like not normal, you know, broadly speaking. And so I do think that there is, and man, I, I'm I'm going to do my best to ask you this question as, as clear as I can, but there seems to be an inherent almost disconnect between what people can see with their eyes and observe in reality and how they interpret that to like this evangelical 
through this evangelical maybe lens that translates it into something that it really isn't. Does that make sense? Uh, And I think that, that, that this mega church or what I call a consumeristic church model, you go attend and consume that idea. The second you critique it, Oh, you're being divisive. Oh, you don't understand the church. Oh, this is God's bride. Oh no, it's all about Jesus. And you're like, but guys, like first off, I'm critiquing the model, which 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 is is very historical to do. And B, this current model physically creates this reality. What are your? I mean, do you do you see yeah. that as well? Like, if, give me I your do. thoughts. Oh, absolutely! So many thoughts. So many thoughts. <laughs> um, I think I've got two things to say in response to that. The first is because evangelicalism is like a confession. You know, it's like we believe this. And, and we spend a lot of time teaching about concepts and, and so on. Um, when there's a mismatch between what's said and what's experienced, it's very jarring, uh, as you've experienced, as I've experienced, as so many people have experienced. But the reality is there is a mismatch. And the way evangelicalism tends to deal with that is, no, there's no mismatch and just state the claim again. You know, no, right. we're about yes. Jesus. Yes. I'm like, okay, you say you're about Jesus. I, I hear you saying that, but what do right. I see? What do I see? Yes. You know, do you feed the poor? Do you love the outcast? Do you forgive your enemy? Um, do you operate through gentleness? Uh, or do you operate with the sword, you know, which Jesus rebuked his number one disciple for using the sword, Peter, because he tried to defend Jesus by force, by power. You know, so how can you say we follow Jesus and yet what you're doing and what I'm seeing seems such a mismatch and you can't yes. fix that by just saying it again. Okay. So that's the, <laughs> right. that's the first, that's the first thing I would say to that. And the second is there's a, in, in many parts of evangelicalism, a totalitarian approach to truth. And what I mean mm. by that is, um, it protects itself from critique by saying, if you disagree with us, you disagree with the Bible because we are the Bible people. If you disagree with us, you are rejecting Jesus because we are the Jesus people. And so many things to say in response to that. First of all, no, <laughs> the Bible doesn't belong to evangelicals. You know, all Orthodox Christian traditions hold the Bible as sacred scripture. Second, Jesus doesn't belong to evangelicals either. You know, whether it's Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, um, uh, even a, even Episcopalian, you know, they actually hold Jesus at the center of the faith. So to say, oh, we're the Jesus people, it's like a hugely arrogant thing to say. But the totalitarian approach comes in when you when you realize it's not that the scriptures are your highest authority; it's your interpretation of the scriptures that's the highest authority. Thank you, in Thank you, Constantine. Thank you. Yes, yeah. continue on. I'm listening. Yeah. So your interpretation controls everything else, but the reality is, you know, you need to be able to get in there and say, well, what if your interpretation is a bit off here? You know, what about these parts of the scriptures that you seem to be ignoring? Or what about this application of the scriptures that seems totally um, misjudged? You know, so you need to be able to get in there and say those things. And even in an ideal world, evangelicalism would get in there and say it. And I, to be honest, like I, I, I've my whole Christian life been an evangelical. So in a way, this is an internal critique. Right, it, right. <laughs> you know, I'm not from standing on the outside throwing stones. 
You know, totally. I, I'm from the totally. inside. I'm an insider. I taught in an evangelical seminary for years. You know, I published books with evangelical publishers. I've given papers at the Evangelical Theological Society. Like, I'm not an outsider throwing stones. I might be an outsider now because I yeah. might have been cast out by the tribe. But right. you need the tribe needs to be able to listen to internal critique as well as external critique, but especially internal critique where you hold to the same basic principles that God exists, that Jesus is Son of God, that God is love, that the Scriptures are His Word. If you hold to those principles, those general fundamental principles, then we should be able to have, have a conversation and say, I think you're misunderstanding you know, what the kingdom of God means. Or I think you, you misunderstand you know, the Bible's view towards sexual sin. Or I think you misunderstand like, you know, how we should be treating people whose marriages fail. Like, we need to be able to have that conversation without going, oh, you've become a liberal or you're an outsider <laughs> or you don't belong to the tribe anymore or, or you obviously don't believe the Bible anymore. That's nonsense. Um, yes. I mean, it's like you're in my head. I, I have said almost these things verbatim yeah. dozens of times. And yeah. I think one of the reasons why I am maybe sometimes discouraged is because I, I have used all of those different tactics to have a good faith dialogue with people to say, listen, I'm like, I am one of you. I grew up in this world. I, I love Jesus. I am committed. To, I, I do this work because of my love for Jesus and for people, because my Christian tradition taught me these are the highest ideals. You know, yes, maybe I'm rethinking what the Bible means, but I'm, I still see it as sacred and even in its own way inspired, even though it's really complicated and messy. And I still see it as a source of wisdom that, that God has spoken through in a unique way. Yada, yada yada i can say all that i can say i i I affirm the trinity and their physical resurrection which i do and then we have one discussion about whatever hot button culture war topic and i say maybe we're missing it or maybe we should rethink this or how can you say i love my enemies while then calling the uh the democrats demons Help me yeah. understand this, and they go, "Oh, you're just a woke liberal." It's like, yeah. oh my, I, I, how do, yeah. how can we have a conversation when when yeah. when when like we share the same uh, what I thought would be foundational heritage? That's when I get discouraged because I don't yeah. know how to have a conversation where folks in that in that particular headspace could be open just to like thinking about anything yeah. one degree differently than where they do now. Do you have any yeah. wisdom here? Cause I can sure as hell use it. Uh, it comes down, I believe to, to tribalism. So mm. the problem is the tribe is incredibly powerful and people don't want to be excluded yeah. from the tribe. Totally. And at various points in time, the tribe adopts certain shibboleths, like certain little uh, indicators of whether you're in the tribe or against the tribe. And at the moment, those indicators are like vote Democrat, <laughs> uh, not supporting Trump, um, you know, you know, showing love to uh, homosexual people or people with uh, gender uh, uh, dys- dysmorphia, you know. Um, so I- as soon as you do those things, you're, you're showing yourself, oh, no, you're not in our tribe. You're in that other tribe over there, and they're our enemy. Right. Um, and that's incredibly destructive, and it's a it's a natural human tendency, I might say. But it has sure, nothing yeah, to yeah. do. It has nothing to do with authentic Christianity, because Jesus said, 
here's the truth, right? Not these tribal indicators. And mm. he said, the way you can show that you belong to me is you love one another. This mm. is how everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So that statement right there in John's gospel in chapter 15, in my mind, it blows away tribalism because it's saying, no, it's not saying if you have this political view that differs from the tribe, then you can't, you're not my disciple. Or, uh, no, if you, you know, you understand some part of the scriptures slightly differently from the rest of the tribe, then, oh, no, you're not my disciple. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if you love one another, you're, you're my disciple. Yeah. And, and that means in authentic Christianity, there, there is no place for tribalism. Uh, yeah. What do you think the future is? I mean, I, you know, evangelicalism, while certainly receiving a lot, a lot of critiques, I, it seems like it almost thrives off of that. Like, in, 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 again, we're all speaking yeah. broadly, folks. Okay, we know that there are always exceptions to these rules, but it, they're almost, especially, I'm not sure in Australia, but definitely in America, there's like a persecution complex kind of built into this whole thing. So the second any other group, either internally or externally, starts critiquing or starts advocating for for, for equity legally, all of a sudden, oh my God, we're being persecuted. And then this is what we've been warned about. And so this is God showing that, you know, we we, we should be ready for this. They, they, I, I, I'll put it this way. I have found that no matter, no matter the angle, um, there's always a defense mechanism ready, ready to kind of cut you off at the pass. So, for example, if something grows in evangelicalism numerically, uh, oh, this is God blessing it. Yeah. If if something shrinks, right? Oh, this is persecution. We have to pray harder. If something is adopted publicly, oh, we're a Christian nation. If something is is reduced to just the the tribe, oh, that's okay because we're on God's side. Like, 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 like there's no way that they interpret it as maybe we're missing something. It's always a way of interpreting it. No, God is on our side somehow. So yeah. with that all kind of being said, what do you think the future of like this massive term and movement is? Because even though I find it deeply problematic for a lot of reasons, I don't see it going anywhere. They have a lot of political power, especially stateside right now. Well, you know, Jesus said that the humble will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be brought low. This is the, this is God's power economy. You know, it's the opposite from a world's way of thinking. You know, Paul critiques the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Um, we preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness and a stumbling block to people who don't understand it because you're talking about a Messiah, a king, who dies. You know, the Romans couldn't understand Christian faith in the first couple mm -hmm. of centuries because they, you know, there's a, um inscription that was found, um, where was it? Was it in Pompeii? I'm not sure. I have to check. But it had a picture of um, scratched into a wall, someone crucified with a donkey's head. And it said, Alexamenos worships his God, right? This total nonsense to the Roman world that you would worship someone who was crucified. Hmm. But that message is what turns the world upside down and has done yeah. so time and time again for 2,000 years, that God's strength is found in weakness, hmm. that God exalts those who humble themselves. So it must be fundamental 
for any genuine Christian who genuinely understands that message to humble themselves and to think about where are we going wrong? Where have we misunderstood the scriptures? Where have we failed in our engagement with the world? Without yeah. that humility, and like you were saying, that there's always some way to not listen to those critiques. There's always some way to bat away critiques or problems. But as long as that happens, that's, that's pride. That's yeah. arrogance. And mm. if we believe Jesus' words, God will bring you down. If you're not going to humble yourself, you will be humbled. And I, I think historically, you know, I, I don't want to overblow it, but it, to me it feels, <laughs> it feels like exactly what happened in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. He was inside the church very deeply. But in all good conscience, he started saying, well, you know, the Bible says this, you know, and the Bible says that. And then discovering that that was actually contradicting papal authority and papal teaching. And what was the church's response? Was the church to say, um, oh, oh, Martin, you're right. You're absolutely right. Oh, we need to, you know, we need to look at this. And maybe the yes. Pope's not, maybe the Pope's that, not infallible. And, you know, maybe that's what we happened be- for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's the story. No, they, <laughs> they, they kicked him out and tried to kill him and all his followers. Um, now, of course, I, I don't mean that to critique the Catholic Church today. In many ways, it's a very different um, institution from medieval Catholicism in the 16th century. But um, when the Church is not humble enough to listen to critique and clings to power, it will just exclude anyone who wants to critique it. And then, you know, the Protestant church was born as a result. And modern evangelicalism needs to learn from that because like, are you just going to exclude everyone who has a critique or are you going to humbly look inside and go, you know what? We need to dismantle this celebrity culture. We need to rethink the whole mega church model. We need to rethink our engagement with the political discourse in this country. We need to rethink our attitude to, you know, um, homosexuality and gender issues. You know, we need to rethink all these things and come back to the message of Jesus and the scriptures and be, and be critiqued by them because Jesus, you know, part of being a Christian is being critiqued by Jesus. You see that in his letters to the churches in the book of revelation. You know, he, he loves these churches. He's not against them, but he says, look, you've, I hold this one thing against you. You know, you've got to work on this, you know? Yeah. Um, and if you're not willing to listen to that critique from Jesus, then, you know, I didn't, what are you doing with the label Christian anyway? Well, I mean, that's what a lot of us are, I think are wondering while also trying to maintain a spirit of humility, you know, cause we tell people all the time, we don't want, we don't want to become fundamentalists all over again. Like it's kind of baked into my heritage, right? To find these new absolutes of everything. Um, yeah. and I think there's a difference between being confident about something and being absolutely objectively there's no compromise here right? right my my last question to you and again you know constantine i really appreciate you writing this book and uh, reading it i felt incredibly seen um and just like oh thank god like I'm, i mean i know i'm not alone more than ever now because the work that we do but it just it, it's helpful to have folks like yourself write these books and i'm like thank you like yes like we're, i know we were not crazy for, for seeing this stuff. But right now you're talking to a lot of people who probably would not use the evangelical label. I mean, I get this all the time. People say, I love your work. love what you do. I'm not sure what the whole new evangelical thing, but I'm here. I'm here for, for, for everything else. And I totally get that and respect that you're talking to a lot of people who 
have experienced a lot of what you said, like you, they've experienced legitimate church hurt, uh, church trauma. They've been kicked out of their tribe. They thought they were all in. Something happened beyond their control or they discovered, hey, actually, maybe my sexual orientation is not what I thought it was. And they lost everything. They lost their friends. I mean, I, I get these DMs. We get hundreds of DMs a week and we hear these stories all the time. And my question is, what would you say to those people who are They're trying to find a better path forward in their faith. They're trying to find better ways of following Jesus. Maybe for the first time, the analogy we use is that they're kind of coming out of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism into this, this, this house of the Christian tradition and going, Oh my God, like there's, it's so much bigger than I ever imagined or, or ever knew. What would be your message to those people who are listening, who are like, thank you, Constantine, but like, what now? Like, what do I do with this whole faith thing? Yeah. Well, first thing I'd say is um, you're not crazy and you're not alone. Uh, God loves you and um, let's take it from there, you know? Yeah. Uh, There's nothing to fear from the truth. Keep seeking the truth. And Jesus is Mm. about the truth. He claimed to be the truth. Yeah. So investigate those claims and don't let the church throw you off. I know it's difficult to separate those things. You know, I experienced it myself. Church, whether it's evangelical church or some other version of church can be frustrating because we're dealing with people who are, you know, fallen and, and imperfect and, and make mistakes and have blind spots. But that's why we need each other. You know, Christianity is not meant to be a solo thing. We do need each other precisely so that we can point out where we're going wrong, where we're making mistakes and help each other to course correct. So whatever form it would be, whether it's just purely online um, or, you know, uh, through social media or whatever, but ideally in person, be connected with other believers or other people who are at least exploring, you know, these issues because it's not a solo race. We need each other. We do. We're communal beings. We're social animals. We, we need each other. And, and that is, you know, Jesus came to create a people belonging to him. And, and, and therefore we belong, if we belong to him, we belong to each other. Mm. So, uh, just please don't isolate yourself and don't give up. Some people are like, I'm so sick of the church. I can't be a Christian anymore. I understand that. I get it. Yep. But you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yep. No, I think that's really well said. We use the same language. You know, for people yeah. who want to walk out the door, I, you know, and explore other, other houses on the block, so to speak. I mean, you know, have at it. I get it. But uh, for a lot of us, we just can't shake this Jesus thing. You know, we, we can't shake yeah. this idea of loving neighbor, loving our enemy, this subversion to empire. There's something beautiful here that I think is, is compelling. Uh, and so, Constantine, yeah. I really appreciate you making time and coming on the podcast. Friends, the book is Jesus vs. Evangelicals, a biblical critique of a wayward movement. The book is out now. You can get it wherever books are sold. Um, are Do you have like an, uh, an online public presence? Do you do anything else besides write amazing books and sell them? <laughs> I have a website. It's uh, ConstantineCampbell.info, and you can find out uh, about all my stuff there. Great. I was going to mention this earlier, but I'll mention it now. I think Constantine is the most badass name, thanks to the movie <laughs> Constantine with, with Keanu Reeves. Because whenever yeah. I hear Constantine, I just think of like Demon Slayer, just someone just, you know, <laughs> knocking them out. So I think it's a badass name for, for, for what it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm named thanks after Thanks for coming my- on. 
Yeah, I'm named after my great-grandfather. But thank you for having me, Tim. It's great to talk with you today. Let's keep in touch. Will do.